It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. How's your COVID life? Well, we just got out of Quaro. Yeah, Quaro on the Rona. I didn't uh, get COVID, but everyone in my family did. Everyone else did? Mm-hmm. Did you guys, everyone else tested positive, huh? Um. Oh, well, only uh, only our youngest daughter did. Actually, Piper, well, she got sick, but right. she didn't test positive. Okay. So who knows? Who knows? But so your youngest did test positive. She did so test it was positive. So the pestilence was among you. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It. Um. Her preschool got wiped out, and it was super sad because her, well, her preschool teacher uh who like has bad reactions to vaccines and couldn't get vaccinated she got sick too and she mm. got really fucked i mean she's fine she's going to be okay but right. she's like an old polish lady who was just got totally destroyed by mm. she's still not really out of bed yet and it's been over a week right so um but we're we're all rooting for her to pull through of course yeah but yeah no joke no joke so but, yeah, the vaccines worked for me, so I haven't haven't been sick yet. But mm-hmm. maybe I'm maybe I, I could be spreading viral load into you, your nose right now. That's okay. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm not scared of it. I'm vaxxed and boosted, and bring it on. You yeah, know? I've got friends. Who, well, our friend Michael Logan got really really sick a couple weeks ago, and and um, we skipped his. We were gonna go have a fiftieth birthday weekend and the whole thing, and he skipped it because he was so sick. But then it turns out he didn't have COVID, and he was pissed. Oh, really? <laughs> How does he know? Because he, he tested. It. Yeah, he tested negative. Yeah, the whole time, and he was like, he's an educator, so you know, he just assumed that he had it. And I was like, and he's pissed because he's like, well, why am I sick if I'm not gonna get the sweet, sweet antibodies? Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just normal sick. Damn, that's yeah. the worst right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. But no, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling I'm feeling like I'm just like rocking through 2022 like it's 2015. <laughs> oh dude, I'll tell you what. A week a week of Quaro felt like all of 2020 in one week. It was like a long week uh with two kids at yeah, home but and It wasn't that long ago you had those little brats home full time. I know, anyway, but it's right? so funny when they once they go to school right. and then you get used to just having yeah. a few days of silence in the yeah. house. Um so, yeah. Anyway, I feel like we're God, we gotta get. It's gotta happen. We gotta get out of this whole scene soon. They're. I think they're getting rid of the mask policy at the school. This at week. your school. At our school. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a different vibe down we're, here. Yeah. <laughs> where you live than where I live. Yeah. There's so. a few more. Um. Uh. The, the gun per capita ratio is higher. Is much higher yeah. down here. Um. So I think we'll probably last longer up in Carbondale. But I. Whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Miles doesn't care. It's like. If I don't give him his mask, he's like, where's my mask? Like, yeah. Yeah. This whole idea that somehow it's like destroying his childhood is just completely absurd. <laughs> he doesn't care. But he's different. He doesn't care about a lot. <laughs> how, how does, I mean, what's Piper's reaction to masks, Ben? She hardly wears them in school. Right. She's, I, I think, you know, we've kind of like peeked into her classroom and none of the mm-hmm. kids are really wearing them. I mean, yeah. the, you know, the teacher's wearing them. They're trying to wear them. But yeah. They're, it's right. just not. They're kindergartners. They're kindergartners, yeah. yeah. So, Anyhow, but that's not what we're here to talk about. No, we're here to talk about something more sad. Right. Than, uh... We're just opening with... Although, actually, what we just talked about, other than, than your Polish teacher getting really sick, um, 
None of it was sad. I mean, even that, that she's going to recover. She's not on a ventilator somewhere. No, she's not. Right. No, no, it's not sad. It was just sad that uh, we didn't get to podcast last week because I was exactly. in Coro. <laughs> that was the we worst. We could have, though, but we don't like to do it online that much. <laughs> um, I thought that we could talk about this amazing and tragic story that happened down in Patagonia mm-hmm. in the last couple weeks uh, where this top Italian alpine climber, Cora Pesce, died on Serratore. Right. Yeah. Had you heard his name before? Yes. Oh, you had? Yeah, I had. Just, I mean, it was just, I recognized it. Um, and I think maybe from there. And uh, yeah, but it was, it's interesting. I just had this moment today where I was like, is there an Olympics happening right now? Like, mm-hmm. I had this, like, I finally, like, realized that there was enough sort of information. And, uh, and unfortunately, this story reminded me, I'm like, oh, it's Patagonia season because mm. I hadn't been paying attention either. Right. Um, but it is, it's like right around December, or January is when you start hearing all the rad shit. And like, yeah. Um, it just kind of like reminds you if you're not there that, Oh yeah, it's Patagonia season. Let's see what's going to happen this year. And unfortunately that was the thing that poked through the media to remind me that it's summertime in South America. Right. And people are climbing in Patagonia. What was your impression of, uh, who Cora was like, was, um, did you get the sense that he was like a on the level of like a Colin Haley or something in the U.S. in in Europe, or was he a bigger name? Or but you know what I'm saying? Like how famous was he? Was he like? Yeah, I I don't I don't totally know because I always when I hear a name like uh and and I know that they're like a, a European alpinist. I do a bunch of things. I assume they're just like way better than anyone here. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know why, but I still have this like euros are better kind of thing when it yeah. comes to alpine climbing. Um, and I understood that he was, uh, I thought he was a guide or something like that. Okay, but, but no, I didn't have an impression of him as being like a superstar or anything like that. Okay, although I think he is. I think, well, you know, having spent some time in Italy in the climbing scene mm-hmm. there, there's there's um, just like very just homegrown you know, nationalistic pride among for anyone who's rises above mm-hmm. and gains kind of international recognition at any level. They mm-hmm. kind of treat them all like superstars. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he was just like beloved on that, you know, level that mm-hmm. we, we love our, our, uh, American climbers, but yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know, as, as, you know, American podcasters, American climbers like to try to have this like global international perspective on stuff and, but, you know, you just think about, like, when, like, people like Micah Dash or Johnny Cop died, like, there's probably a lot of people in Europe who had no idea who those guys were, but right. it was such a big deal to us. I'm just trying right. to put myself in that mindset of right. the, the young Italian climber who's probably like, oh, Cora, my hero. Like, he, sure. you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um. Anyway, so, yeah, just to, like, kind of recap the details of what happened, because it, it it's um it's a really... It's it's a stunning story it's of um of both tragedy and also just like courage and bravery on the part of climbers who did everything they could to to rescue him and rescue his partner. Um so yeah, Sakura and his partner was named Tommy Aguilo. Aguilo? Aguilo? Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce yeah. it. Tommy um Tommy and Cora climbed a new route on the east face of Cerro Torre, which is a big deal. That's the the face that Maestre tried to climb in 1959 and or claimed that he climbed in 1959, but likely didn't. It's like the biggest, baddest 
wall in Patagonia, basically, from what I understand. So they did a new route on this on the east face, which has basically only been done a couple times. Um, and incidentally, there was another team of three Italian climbers, Matteo della Bordella, uh, David Bacci, and Matteo um, di Zicomo. I'm sure I butchered all of those names, but especially the second one. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, they also put up a new route on the east face of Cerro Torre. Right. So two, just think about that for a second. Two new routes on the east face of Cerro Torre on the same exact day. That's like, well, it's never happened, and it's a b- pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, that news, which would have been like this kind of monumental climbing achievement that we would have been like raving about, got overshadowed by this ensuing tragedy that happened. So, um, so the three Italians that I just mentioned, whose names I butchered, they b- bivied on the summit. And they were going to rappel down the compressor route the next day. Meanwhile, Tommy and Cora decided to just keep going. And they wanted to wrap down the North Face in the dark at night when, you know, presumably things would be frozen up and it would be safer. They started rappelling at 6 p.m. And, like, they reached uh, some kind of little bivy shelter where they had had stuff like sleeping bags and, and gear stashed. And they bivvied there for a couple hours right before sunrise. While they were bivvying there, um, this like mushroom of ice and snow cut loose and basically pummeled them and just avalanched on top of them. Uh, it sounds like oh, and all their gear got like strewn down the face. Um, Cora, it sounds like, was instantly paralyzed and just in agonizing, immense pain. And Tommy. Uh, was severely injured, but I haven't really grasped the extent of his injuries from any of the reports I've read. But he was uh, mobile enough to continue repelling, which is, after some amount of time, is what he decided to do. And uh, as he was repelling down in this, like, kind of, you know, injured state, he came upon some of his gear and he got a hold of their in-reach device and he initiated he he was able to call and say that we're injured and we need a help and a rescue and so he called this in this rescue and somehow simultaneously to this or i'm not sure exactly where this came from but some climbers in um in one of the camps that was close to the glaciers where everyone kind of bivvies like on their way between town and the mountains noticed that some that a headlamp was signaling an SOS uh, signal. And uh, they got worried about that. They woke up Thomas Huber and told him about it. They, and all of a sudden, all these people just from this like headlamp signal, whether that was Cora or Tommy, I'm not sure, but someone, you know, was like, got this signal across with a headlamp and started in motion these people coming up the glacier to to see what was wrong. By the next morning, the other three Italians who had bivvied on the top wrapped down the compressor route over 15 hours or something, 30 pitches, got to the base. And right as they got to the base, they were met by this group of people who, who told them that Cora and Tommy were injured and needed help. Matteo della Bordella, who was one of the three Italian climbers, agreed not only to be part of the rescue, but lead it because he was most familiar with this area where they were 
uh, said to be. So think about that for a second. This guy just like climbed a new route on the east face of Saratore, bivied on the, on the top, just wrapped 15 pitches down and is instantly agreeing to go back up the mountain to, to like get into some heinous shit trying to rescue his friends. Some other climbers had brought, um, or part of this rescue squad, they brought a drone and were able to like use the drone to fly around and they identified where Tommy was at this point. And so, yeah, so Mateo is like, okay, I know how to get there. And so he like led this rescue that included Roger uh, Shali, um, famous Austrian alpinist. Thomas Huber and someone named uh, Roberto True, who I'm sure is an amazing climber. I've just never heard of his name before. But the th- the four of them climb seven pitches up the mountain, get to this like triangular snowfield, and then traverse sixty meters over the mount over terrain and reach Tommy. At which point it's like midnight, and Thomas Huber and Roberto True um, get uh, Tommy and start like. They, they stabilize him and like get him to like repel the rest of the way and bring him down the mountain. Meanwhile, um, Mateo and Roger bivy there thinking that they're going to keep climbing to try to find Cora by like 3 AM. The winds have picked the classic Patagonia thing. It's like windy, cold. They're worried about getting frostbite and they're thinking that there's no way from what they understood about Cora's condition that he's still alive and that they were probably going to lose their lives if they stayed on the mountain or kept trying to climb. Um, and so they, you know, made the hard decision and just like turn around and go down. Anyway, there was like 40 climbers that helped get Tommy back to this base camp. And, um, at which point a helicopter was able to airlift him to a hospital from what I understand. And he's like recovering or has recovered from, um, this experience. And obviously Cora, unfortunately didn't make it and he died um by all accounts he was like the strongest climber of this whole group like the 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 five italians they like met a thousand at this point juncture a thousand feet below the summit on the east face and and cora was the one who like led the last gnarly bits all the way to the summit he was like he was the you know the leader in this group like the strongest climber Mm -hmm. so I don't know. I thought this was like a crazy story and it just kind of like speaks to the nature of rescues in this place where there is no rescue. There is no official or kind of sanctioned rescue team in the way that there is in the Alps or in Yosemite or places like that. You know, when, when I read these stories, I'm just always struck by all the way that all these like little details kind of serendipitously either work out or don't work out. You know, the fact that the drone was there to, easily identify someone like there was that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago you Mm -hmm. know like 10 years ago tommy probably would have died too the fact that someone had seen the headlamp sos signal in this base camp miles away um and knew and and like would you know what that was like would you personally like look up and see a blinking headlamp and be like oh we have to go help that person like, I, I don't know. I, you know I, I took. I mean? Bo- I mean, I was a Boy Scout. As a okay. <laughs> I feel like I would know that, but um, but maybe not. I, I just. I probably like, would have been drunk and asleep. I mean, or well something. done to whoever was like. I think that means there's an emergency happening, right? And it's not just like, oh, there's weird. Is there's a headlamp blinking, Totally. You know. Totally. Yeah. 
yeah, I don't know. It's just like this amazing thing that happened. I mean, it's amazing one that the the climbing achievements that they pulled off, mm-hmm. like two new routes on the most notorious, biggest, hardest face on Territore on the same day. And then, you know, sadly that one person died, but, you know, amazingly one person didn't and is going to, you know, continue living their life because of these really fucking heroic efforts by Thomas Huber, Matteo Della Bordella, who's a fucking beast, you know, having done the route, a new route coming down and then just gone right back up into the teeth of this, you know, situation to try to rescue his friends. So, yeah, I don't know. I thought that that was like something that is worth talking about to just give both uh, props to the rescuers for all the work that they did and also props to the climbers for including Cora for pulling off these like amazing ascents that are otherwise overshadowed by the fact that, you know, that he died. And I've always kind of been interested in, in, uh, in, the rescue situation in Patagonia because, you know, it's like kind of become this place where it's a lot easier to be as a climber. And so the, there's a lot more creature comforts than there used to be in 30 years ago. There's this kind of progression that I think a lot of people on like the trad circuit in this country have, where they like spend a few seasons in Yosemite and they get their big wall tactics down. And then they go to Patagonia to try to do a, a route. But, um, our our friend, our deceased friend Hayden, it was a critic of of this uh, tactic because uh, Hayden Kennedy, because he just felt like there was a, a lot of people who didn't really understand the gravitas of the the fact that they're in this really remote place and there is no Yosar to come, you know, with a helicopter and and rescue you off the mountain, and it takes like you know dozens of people of the best climbers in the world climbing and doing everything they can throughout the night to try to save you if you do get into trouble Mm -hmm. you know through no fault of your own either it was like really bad luck that they just happen to be in this in the worst place at the wrong time Mm -hmm. and um but that happens to the best and so yeah because it's almost like yosemite south right uh it's like the seasonal thing to go down there and but it's a remote place and and like that's sort of obvious in a way when you say it but you know, even when you said that he was helicoptered to a hospital, in my brain, because I've hung out a little bit, right away I was like, well, where the hell was that? Because, I mean, it may have been all the way to Bariloche. Or, I, I could I could be wrong about that. Right. I thought that I read that, that that was part of the report. But either way, from well, what I'm I understand, saying, there, w- there wouldn't right. have been a helicopter right. until recently. Like, yeah. That has to be new. But my point being is there's no hospital within yeah. a long ways right. of of that place and so that's when i was like well where is the hospital because i've been to some of the towns far north of there but on the way down and it's like they just get smaller and smaller and you know there's not much going on and even the fact that Bariloche has a has a decent hospital i'm very familiar with this hospital um because of of not something that happened to me but something that happened to a friend of mine that when we were down there um i i mean i can only imagine it may be the closest thing and it's you know an 18 hour bus ride. I don't know how many it is in miles from there to down to El Shaltan. So yeah, I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere, you know, or maybe they went to the Chilean side. I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. kind of interesting, but those, those questions just reveal like, you know, we're, we're sort of not just the Yosar thing, 
but we're used to this infrastructure mm-hmm. if you're climbing anywhere in the lower 48. Or the Canadian know, Rockies or, the Canadian or, Rockies or Chamonix or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah, Chamonix, totally. So, yeah. you know, again, it's easy to have the two things in your head, like, oh, it's the wildest, most remote place in the world. But in a lot of ways, we've been told again and again in the last decade that it's like, it's oh, it's so much more chill and the weather forecasts are great. And like, you know, it's just like this place where people go to climb like they're going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's a bit of a wake up call, I guess, when when something like this happens. Yeah. Um, but it's also an interesting look at like how we talk about it and approach it. Or it's hard to kind of figure out how to approach the success that they had mm-hmm. versus what happened. And, and, you know, days later, the thing that's wild about it, too, is that I'm sure teams marched as soon as the next weather window showed up all those rescuers who were down there with their own goals went after them. Probably not. I, th- I think everyone actually was so bummed about the whole thing oh, that really? everyone kind of went home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like the, um, I mean like, and, and I'm sure that I, like I said, I don't, I've never heard of Cora before this. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know anything about him, but I would imagine if he, you know, he would probably want us to talk about his success on right. that route, you know? Right. And it's just incidental that he happened to die and, you know, basically from bad luck. And so I want to just give voice to that success because that's so it, the, the, um, the, the bad luck that he experienced doesn't negate the tremendous skill that was required to do what he did, you mm-hmm. know, 12 hours earlier. And, from you know everything that I've seen that's been written about, it's all about the accident, of course, and and that's understandable. But um, but yeah, I think a, a platform like this is just like worth being able to just like vocalize that sentiment and just give like props to the to the achievement itself, um, regardless of the fact that it didn't end well, you know, right? And the achievement of the rescue. And the achievement of the rescue, which is, I, I don't know, just like I kept thinking while you were talking about it, about the, you know, the ubiquitous story of, you know, people marching by the dying climber on Everest. Right. And not giving up what they're trying to do to help that person. Yeah. That's interesting. And how, what a dichotomy it is and how I just can't even imagine that anyone anywhere near that incident in Patagonia wouldn't give up what they were trying to do to go do something, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm sure aside from the people that were there, when it got to El Shulten, you know, um, people probably met them on the trail on the way down met, you know, I'm sure that people mobilized Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, so it's like, I just kept while you're talking. I'm just like, God, what a, I mean, I don't want to go back to the whole Everest thing again, because we (laughs) hammer it so much, but it speaks volumes about what, those two different worlds and why we, why we've dismissed the one. I mean, that's a really valid critique and it's really sad to like put it in those stark terms, Mm -hmm. but it's true that it's like no big deal to like march right past a dying body on Everest. And it's, uh, I mean, not no big deal, but like it has happened enough to like be, um, a meme that we reference and, um, the tension that's in my head is like, you know, this desire to be like, well, 
you know, if the best, if like some of the best climbers in the world are just unlucky and they could be saved if there was just like a helicopter in the town nearby and a good, you know, hospital and the, and a train team that, you know, knew the mountain terrain well enough to mm-hmm. like, you know, coordinate a rescue. So she, she, we could get people out of these mountains. And I mean, the, basically the Alps. Basically the Alps. Like, right. why wouldn't, why wouldn't we want that? You know, why wouldn't we pool resources to create that? Why wouldn't there be, you know, if it was like outside the Argentine government or even, you know, like there, it seems like if it's just a money problem and it could save lives, why wouldn't we want that? But then on the other hand, we always talk about these situations of ultimate risk and self-reliance and Patagonia embodies that as well as any place in the world you know, that, um, that spirit of truly being in the, in the hills and in the mountains and, you know, having to take care of yourself to the best that you can. And, and yeah, and this is the, you know, this is the stark and dark reality of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, you get unlucky and you might die or you will die. It's hard to like know what to make of that, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what the right thing is, but. Well, I think they'll, I mean, there is no like decision to be made in my opinion, like it'll, depending on if the world keeps going, which is, you know, always an iffy <laughs> prospect, but you know, if, if climbing keeps going, let's say on a trajectory generally towards where it's going, then as there was never a town there, there's a town there. And as there's a slightly bigger town there, there'll be more rescue resources. Sure. And, you know, we, there there won't be a decision made like this is the end of the wilderness of Patagonia, but there'll be stuff added, stuff added, and and maybe someday there will be a helipad with a dedicated chopper, right? Because not only for climbers, but for for you know trekkers and for people, and because a, a and a and I think that's the biggest source of rescues is like yeah people for sure. are trekking yeah. Yeah. yeah and and is as and it also becomes a revenue. Protect, protection right is that if you want if if the tourist dollars keep pushing it then you want the tourists to be feel safe and then more will come and i mean it's you know as i talk about it it sounds tragic in a lot of ways but it's just normal it's just natural that mm-hmm. that i think there would be you know i can't predict how many years but again it's it's almost a for sure that there'll be more resources dedicated to rescuing not just climbers, but trekkers as time goes by. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the trajectory of what's happened to Patagonia in general. It's right. Like we've added resources to make it more inviting and, and more user-friendly. And, you know, we all think about it as climbing, but El Shaltan is there to, to service, you know, trekkers and, and, and tourists as much as anything. Sure. So, yeah, so it'll be there eventually, and, and there'll be essays that will lament it when the helicopter arrives but uh right you know but in the end it'll just be the next step jordan cannon returns to the runout for a wandering conversation about life and climbing jordan is one of america's best trad climbers who has ticked such proud ascents as golden gate in a day on el cap I mean, I'm always honored to get a call to be on the on the show, but it also makes me think, how desperate are these guys if they have to ask me again? 
to come back on. We're pretty desperate. I guess so. Well, you guys know I'll always say yes. So, well, you, you last time I mean, we talked to you, you or was... James Lucas, right? <laughs> well, last time we talked to Jordan um, was last year, and uh, you you announced your coming out of the closet officially on our show, mm-hmm. which we were really, you know, so honored and psyched to uh, be the platform for that. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so we thought we'd check in. That was one of our best episodes, I think, last year. But we wanted to uh, check in and see how, you know, about a year of being publicly gay has been treating you. And um, what's the what's the what's the what's the state of the gay scene in the climbing world these days? Well, well, j- j- jokes aside, I mean, we you know it, it was a big deal um, for you, Jordan. You know, professionally, it seemed like a big deal, and we kind of had all these thoughts about what might happen and you had thoughts beforehand that what might happen and so well was it a big deal or did it did it simmer down to like no big deal or you know um because we we did have a lot of thoughts on what might kind of happen going forward um at least professionally and publicly um with your with your sort of public platform yeah uh i'd say you know most importantly it was a big deal to me personally but then mm-hmm. you know maybe big deal in the climbing world for a day i don't know and then and then basically not and so so it's been it's been great it's kind of exactly how i wanted how i wanted it to play out but it did kind of start you gave my year last year like a different focus you know as so i came out in may and then earlier in 2021 i took six weeks off to to buy and build the van that i'm in now and you know that took time away from my rock climbing but then yeah coming out and focusing more on my personal life and then kind of agreeing to do way more work stuff last year. It turned last year into much less of a climbing-focused or performance year, and, um, as I've realized. And so now that I am kind of have all that behind me and I've set myself up for where I am now to be focused on climbing and hopefully to go big this year. So I'm psyched to be where I am now. But was the central steps to, you know, to get to this point with all the things I did last year. Yeah, you, you made uh, you made a professional error last year of agreeing to do like four hundred, um, uh, Craig and Classics in a row or yeah. something like that. Yeah, I agreed to be like the keynote of the uh, of the Craig and Classics, and I had the brilliant idea that I was going to drive to every single one of them, which on paper seemed great, but in reality, it was it was a lot. It was a lot. A lot of meet and yeah. greets. A lot of driving. It was fun. I mean, I got to go to a bunch of crags I've never been to, interact with people I never would have met, and yeah, you know, I, we got to show our the film Freeze Can Be the whole time. But it was just a lot of driving, and then you know, it's hard to maintain uh, performance rock climbing when, yeah, you're just driving so much. Which I've learned driving is not a rest day, like ever. If you drive all day, it does not count as a rest day. Um, and then you know, then you have to teach clinics and present and then party with all the crack and classic people they go hard (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't really keep up to be honest (laughs) no dude yeah i know how i perform at festivals and i you know i at least have to put six months six months between them has kind of been my my rule of thumb so um i feel like i paid my dues for the liver to recover oh yeah yeah. it's taken me a long time to recover but i feel like i paid my dues um for this year to basically not do anything and just rock climb so worth it Mm -hmm. so where where in the world is jordan cannon now 
What are what are you up to? Easy answer is I'm at the VRG on the Nevada side at camp right now. And um, is that and, is do you have a big project here that you're focused on, or what's your what's your climbing goals look like right now? Yeah. So well, so like I said, uh, this time last year I was um, building out my new van and took you know six to eight weeks off of off of rock climbing, which didn't set me up well for last year at all. And so this year, now that I have the van and it's done, I'm really just trying to take advantage of take advantage of it and set myself up this year with some like solid training and rock climbing, which is why I ended up in Las Vegas for the past month and a half, living at the Honold compound, we've been calling it, and uh, fully subjecting myself to, to Honold boot camp and coaching. And yeah, and I did basically my first ever training program um, the past six weeks to try and kind of prepare for the VRG, but not really. People are like, what are you training for? And like, what are you psyched on around Vegas? And I'm like, basically nothing. I mean, I don't really care that much about sport climbing. I can leave any of these chassis side routes at whatever random crag any day. But, you know, they're good training for the bigger things that I care about later on down the road, like Yosemite season in a couple months kind of thing. But there is one route at the VRG here, Horse Latitudes, that I tried. I guess it would have been the end of 2020, just a little over a year ago. Yeah, right after Yosemite season, after I had done Golden Gate, I came here thinking I was like, oh, maybe I'll try and climb 514 before the end of my year. Because I had done two earlier that summer, but that I didn't really think were that were necessarily 514 for me. And so I wanted to do a legit one. So I sought out a VRG Randy Levitt classic called Horse Latitude. So what were the two soft ones on that, that you don't you're not crediting yourself for? Um, there's this one in uh, Lake Tahoe called um, Mortal Kombat that Charlie Barrett put up at the Space Invaders Cliff, and then uh, Galactic Emperor and uh, Ten Sleep is another one. I've heard there's no five fourteens in Ten Sleep. Yeah, they're all thirteen C. Probably, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> there was a really funny. Uh, let's not. Let's not. Go there too hard. I think we've already <laughs> well, gone speaking there. Speaking of speaking of ten sleep, yeah, that's why we yeah. don't need to retread. I had yeah. a I had a funny experience um, at the VRG last winter. Maybe I told you guys this, but it was you know I was maybe a few weeks in and was pretty pretty adjusted. But you know how it is for anybody their first time, first day of the season, but also maybe just their first day ever at the VRG. It's like hard to adjust, right? It's like loud. It's cold. It's kind of run out. It feels insecure, like it takes time. And um, but there was a couple there that I had seen in ten sleep in the summer, and they were kind of having like a bad first first day, and weren't really giving themselves any grace. And um, this lady who was like leading this route, she just kept falling, and then she yelled down to her partner, she's like, "I just want to go back to ten sleep." <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> you're like, no shit, we all do <laughs> because ten sleep makes you feel awesome about yourself, but that's not why you go to the VRG. <laughs> you go to the VRG to hate yourself and feel terrible about yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's funny it's that true. place. It's it, you're absolutely right. Like, you can't just drop in like you know, you, you know, with a bunch of candy in your pack and just like be like, well, I'm gonna have no. the best day ever. No. Because you just have a horrible time. You have to like, I've learned you have to want to be there and you have to want all of Mm -hmm. the things that make it hard and 
difficult and what it is. Yeah. I was not ready for that last year. Like it's funny being, I'm in my, uh, in the same parking spot that I was in last winter before I got my van and I was living in my minivan by myself in the desert and it was cold and dark and windy. And, you know, it, I would get home from, or I would get back to camp from climbing all day and the sun would already be down and it's cold as fuck. And I couldn't cook inside my minivan. I had to like set up outside. And most of the time it was too grim that I just got in bed and like ate some peanut butter and went to bed. <laughs> I'm happy to say I've progressed beyond that point and now I can enjoy it a little better. So yeah. you mentioned living with, um, at the Honold compound for about a month. What, what was, uh, what was the training program that Alex put you on? Um, were you doing like breathing exercises with Sonny in preparation for their, <laughs> their impending childbirth? Their baby? No, we did have a few like bring the baby dance sessions though. She's been into that lately. No, I wasn't necessarily like Alex didn't give me a training program. I have a coach. I don't know if you guys know Simon Moore. He's about your age. He lives in Ireland now. Um, but yeah, I've been working with. <laughs> he's about our age, so we should know him. <laughs> well, he's lived in the he's lived in the states and climbed all over. Besides, for a while. Okay, he's okay. Besides, we're ten years apart, man. That's a that's oh, a that's lifetime. Right. You're fifty climbing. now, aren't you? But uh, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's all right. True. Never mind. He's more like Andrew's age. <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, so I've been working with a young whippersnapper that I, I wouldn't pay attention to. <laughs> I've been working yeah. with this coach for for the past year, Simon. He's awesome, but he's kind of just been giving me stuff to do while I'm on the road and while I'm you know climbing outside a lot. Um, but then when I told him I was going to post up in Vegas, he really wanted me to like take advantage of actually trying to, you know, actually trying to train like the kids do on Instagram, I guess. And uh, so he, he had me do an assessment and at the beginning and he was he was stunned to see he was like, Jordan, you are the weakest high performing rock climber I've ever worked with. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where that's where I've been that's what I've been dealing with <laughs> and seems, uh, so yeah being you're constantly um inundated with people who underestimate your your abilities Jordan yeah yeah it yeah. seems like a theme we've been we've been talking about on the show for like years but now. I mean but I mean they're not they're not we wrong. don't believe they're that, not though. wrong I mean when I realized how weak my fingers were on the hangboard, I was I was also stunned. I don't know. I've been trying to find uh, motivation. I got this that there's a lot of room uh, yeah. for growth, but I don't know. There's so many strong rock yeah. climbers out there these days. There aren't that many good rock climbers. I at least think I'm like decent up to a point, but I'd like to fill the gap mm -hmm. with some actual strength. Well, Chris Chris Hampton told me basically the same thing. Not not quite as absolutely as that. Um, but he was also sort of surprised how yeah, weak I was. That doesn't um, surprise and me. And I took I personally took it as a compliment, you know. I was like, Yeah, well that's you know, it's cause I fucking know how to yeah, rock climb. Yeah, exactly. Dude. Like you know <laughs> it's like, thanks, thanks for that compliment. Um, you know, I think it'd be a lot easier for someone younger anyway to get stronger than to necessarily get better at climbing. Yeah. So I found it to be Maybe at my age it was a little different story, but I would find it to be like, wow, at least I have this like, you know, direct scientific path to getting better mm -hmm. as a rock climber, which is to get stronger versus like, oh, I have to get become a better technique. I mean, that's a whole. Well, you know, that, how do you even do that? That's really? what people so. have said, but I'm not sure if that's actually true. I feel like it's easier to just go out and get okay. good technique. You just like go climb a lot on shit that is a lot easier for you. 
right? And just really dial it in. I don't know. I don't know. That was my approach, <laughs> basically. Like I didn't okay. actually climb that well, hard yeah, for a long time, but... you know? You don't learn good technique on the hard hard. You learn it on the easy stuff that you can, like, be repi- you know, do repetitiously. All right. Well, that's good news for all the five. Have, have you actually gotten stronger, though, with your program? noticeably um i i did yeah for okay. sure i got stronger and also you know also just uh, the, the problem is is that you know we talk about age is that you know we're just trying to not let the dam break and um lose it all so you it becomes a war of attrition at my age but you know i i can't you know say enough about how much him starting me on just a mindset of training mm-hmm. whether i'm sticking with it or i go in waves or whatever um, cause I don't work directly with Chris anymore. That was kind of a special case anyway. He doesn't really coach directly anymore, but yeah, no, it's been invaluable in the last couple of years in my climbing, like without cool. a doubt. Um, and the motivation to, to try to keep it up is, is really helpful and to have something to do in the gym when I can't go climbing and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's invaluable. I can't, I, it, there's not a climber out there that like especially at my age that I haven't said like dude quit bitching and and start training and and you know you're going to be way happier as That's a good climber, to hear. um in my opinion so it, I'd say a lot of the same in that you know I've been working with uh my coach Simon for um the past year but it, and he's been kind of teaching me all these things but I haven't really like changed my mindset or my approach a whole lot until just the past the past few weeks and largely because of hanging out with Alex and having him as an example, he's like a perfect example of, you know, exactly what Simon wants me to do. And so I get to kind of see that and emulate that and then have Simon's feedback, you know, online, but then Alex's immediate feedback be like, dude, you're blowing it. Do this. You're, you know, it's been awesome. So that's what it's, I've needed to like really make the paradigm shift. I was going to ask what, what's the, um, what does a training program look like for someone who's kind of itinerant and living out of their van and maybe, you know, doesn't, I don't know, is he telling you to go to the gym or is the training more focused on outdoor climbing? It's two parts. Um, I was basically doing two on one off for the past, for the past eight weeks. And the first day would be more focused on the training stuff when you're most fresh, which I've never done. I've always done the training stuff, you know, after climbing. And people have always said, like, I remember Nick Barry always telling me, he's like, dude, if you're training, you shouldn't be trying to send at the same time because you're too tired from the training to actually be able to perform. And I was always like, yeah, no, I'll just send while I'm training. But that either meant that I wasn't training hard enough or the roots I was trying weren't hard enough. So now that's actually felt true. So that was the main focus. I was just doing some hangboarding and some bouldering, basically, and then some like strength exercises. And then my second day was just normal sport climbing, both a more like power uh, focus rather than endurance focus. And for the while, a while, I was doing a lot of those like the hangboarding with Alex in, in his house until the like our schedules conflicted, and then I, I started going to the gym. Which yeah, have uh, oh by the way, I did want to talk about that. Um, have you guys been to the RTCT gym in uh, in Las Vegas? No. Mm. You guys would like it, I think. It's <laughs> it's like quintessential '90s climbing gym. I think maybe even maybe even before, <laughs> but it reminds me it reminds me of my childhood. You I know? feel like we're getting like, old shamed on this episode, Chris. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't. I don't know. We're not going to talk to Jordan like after this Carbondale. episode. <laughs> this is it. This is the last time you're on the show, Jordan. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll make it worth it. No, I'm we're kidding, of course. Old Seamus, please tell us about this '90s climbing no, gym that we would love. I mean, I I I hate climbing gyms pretty much. Like uh, the modern gyms, I just don't like them. I don't feel. I don't feel comfortable in the climbing gym, but um, the modern climbing gyms. But then I went back to this one, which has been around for the 90s, and it's all grungy. They still, like, mark their roots with tape, you know? It's all dusty. It smells. There's, like, climbing stickers all over the place. There's old photos of, like, Chris Sharma from the early 2000s. You know, there's, like, people at the empl- or working at the front desk that aren't trying to, like, sell you kombucha or, like, yoga classes. And it just like feels like an awesome little training dungeon where you can just like go in and like do your thing and leave and not feel like you need to be a part of like a whole community and be really uh, just, I don't know. I just loved it. So, so when you say R2C2, Red Rock Climbing Center. Yeah, Red Rock Climbing Center. I'm just just giving it a shout out. It's been my favorite. It's been my favorite gym. Is it the place that's, is this on Charleston? Yeah, yeah, is that, it's, it's is it right next old? to Desert Rock. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually worked really? there. <laughs> Wait, at Desert Rock yeah, or yeah. the gym? Oh, the so you gym. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I just assumed that place was long. No, dude, it's still gone, there. Like, it's still there. I'd, I'd, <laughs> okay. I'd be curious right. to hear get, how it's you, changed, but like my... You were using the, the um, you were using the parlance of the times with R2C2, and I was like, R2. Sorry, oh, I sorry. get it. Yeah, right yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Nobody calls it the Red Rock Climbing Center anymore. But um, yeah. <laughs> I love how it has like the multiple lay like levels. You get, go through these little trap dungeon mm-hmm. doors and like those little tunnels. And then yeah, you're the all dun- of a sudden yeah. in a new room. It feels like you're in a video game, like working up the levels. And at the top level is the moon board where you just go get crushed. It's awesome. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's changed a bit, but that was originally designed by Yanira. Mm. And um, it was like, and it, you know, just uh, two things I'll say about my experience and then like kind of historically, it is, you know, it's like from when you say the 90s gym, it's from an era where, which was a, a, a difficult financial era for gyms where they were building climbing gyms for climbers, which was like a, like a set of sort of like financial dead end right. um, to try to sustain your climbing gym by climbers back then. Um you know, and then gyms figured out, okay, we, you know, we got to have like a super big beginner area. We got to have some place to do the, the birthday parties and blah, 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 blah. And that, that like is the modern mm-hmm. era. Although now we've shifted back to where there's enough like pure climbers to also cater to them. But nevertheless, it, I used to have to try to do that, like, you know, bring a total beginner into mm-hmm. that gym. And at that time, there was like maybe a tiny bit of vertical space. And then after that, everything was overhanging. And it was just like every time I brought some beginner person in there, like as a coaching session or whatever, it was just brutal because they just, there was, I was like, where the fuck? And I would put up these like one giant jug climb and they could maybe get like halfway up it. And yeah, it was, it was super gnar. But yeah, I was there like, dude, I would say 97. Okay. So my timeline, my timeline, my old shaming wasn't off. (laughs) It was pretty spot on. (laughs) <laughs> well, that validates yeah man i lived in vegas for like four months and oh, i worked cool. there a little bit that validates my yep. reasons for loving that gym because yeah it does you're right i guess it is made more for climbers i hadn't thought about that 
God, it's got to be so dingy. Oh, it is. I'm, I'm, I've heard Alex talk about it. <laughs> I hope they've changed the pads in the no, carpeting. No, Alex says they haven't changed much. <laughs> That's kind of why I like it, though. You know, they're, they're just like, ah, right. it is yeah. what it is. Enjoy it or don't. We don't really care. Yeah, yeah. It's like maybe some sort of, you know, dingy skate park. Yeah, that's what it feels like. like. I really like like that vibe vibe a lot. You know, they're always like playing like grunge rock or like old metal. It's it's great. Yeah, it's just stuck in, it just like got stuck in in like the the late (laughs) 90s. Just like stopped evolving. Even the music, even the music. It's like a museum. (laughs) I just want to like send all new climbers there and be like, this is where we came from. This is the pusher boss. That's awesome. They probably don't send yeah. uh, don't uh, don't set parkour problems. No, definitely not. Yeah, that's been an interesting thing to see is just how much. I I mean I I wish that there was like a filter on Instagram to like turn off either moonboard <laughs> videos or um, parkour vid, uh, bouldering videos because that's all I see on on the ground. Or how about days. just training videos in general? Like nobody really yeah. wants to see that. Yeah, like a pull I've done, up videos I've done to, it. to 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 music. <laughs> I've done it recently to be like, look, I'm cool now. I train, but nobody cares. You didn't, yeah. Nobody cares. All right, n- n- move to the uh, twerking with cans on your harness <laughs> and see how that how that goes over. <laughs> <laughs> I guess to to sum up your question, the, yeah, the training has basically just been super basic, just hangboarding and moonboarding. And then sport climbing outside. And I've just been trying. I haven't been climbing at all on the um, on the sandstone um, in Vegas. I've just been climbing on the limestone to kind of prepare for for the VRG. I just wanted to be tuned up, which means up I've just been Potosi. going to. Yeah, I've been going to Mount Potosi a lot. There's been a lot of people who've been psyched to go there. And then uh, I've been going to the BD Cave, which have you been to the Blue Diamond Cave? No. It's a it's a pile. No. Dude, it's new. a pile. <laughs> but it, it's really convenient and it's close by and when it's like it's south facing so it gets right. a lot of sun and it's whenever it's cold and windy it can be like a good place there's some good uh there's some good fun routes there but they're all kind of glued and manufactured in choss and i've been there a few times where people come up be like oh well i hear it's getting popular so maybe these routes will have uh have cleaned up and i'm like no no they haven't they're still choss <laughs> but they're right they're still fun to climb on so one other question about the training, though, is that a lot of times I think and myself is sort of included in this, but somebody who's like, you know, so constant and on the road, like, aren't you supposed to take a rest period at some point um, after your training? And are you able to I, do that? I <laughs> am. Where, well, how does that I look am, like? Yeah. No, actually, this uh, this last week was my, I guess, what they call a deload week or a rest week, you know, where mm-hmm. I still climbed, but then uh, just cut out all of the the workout training extra stuff and I, I was starting to to realize kind of what Nick said like when you're training you're too tired to try and send outside and that's how it felt for like the entire you know six weeks of my six weeks of my program until that like that last week where I got myself a little bit more rest and cut out all this all the shit and then I went to the crag and was like just started sending and I was like oh this is what it feels like to actually. There it is. Yeah, yeah. I remembered what it's like to prioritize. I thought it was supposed to be longer. Uh, well, it is, but you know, have they have they changed their thinking in terms of that? I mean, who knows? It changes no, all the time. I, I think I maybe have just been throwing weeks out there, but it was seven seven weeks, and then my right. eighth week was the deload, and now I'm kind of like into a brief performance phase, I guess. 
I don't really know. But then, uh, <laughs> then I'm gonna, yeah, then I'm gonna start another cycle, I guess. And I think that's just my life now. I think I just do that forever. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to just like, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to just wrap my wrap my head around my head around that. So in the past, I would be like, I would like do a little bit of this stuff very unorganized and sporadically, you know, for like, I don't know, a month or two and then be like, all right, I'm good for the year. And then I would just go climb all year and think that I was like still benefiting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, well, don't suck all the fun out nah, of this No, I know. Thing, you know. I know what you mean. Right. I hate, I kind of, <laughs> cause that's, the I used to step. hate, I used to hate talking about this stuff, but I've been kind of into it. I've been kind of into it lately. I'm just seeing, well, and in, in, I'm just seeing yeah, it all differently. Go ahead. So. Well, in 25 years, we'll be back on the run out. We'll be talking about how great the gyms were in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the 2020 oh, gyms? Those for fucking, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have the anti-gravity machine, you know, that helped you get up the roots and all that shit. It was more real yeah. back then. <laughs> so, well, let me, let me ask you a question too about, um, you know, hanging out in Vegas watching your Instagram. I mean, you made some comment about like that you thought you were going to be somewhere else. I can't remember where it was, but it's not important. But the, the, what about the sort of mental health in terms of, you know, I think the road dog in, like you said, driving across the country, you know, working so hard professionally and, you know, Andrew and I've definitely commented about how like, you know, the van life thing, it'll, it'll wear you down just that, even though it, it seemed like the dream um, when it happened. So how was it to sort of be in one place, have this crew, you know, have the support of, of hanging out at Honnold's place and, um, you know, just kind of from the social mental health thing versus the, you know, the cold nights on the cow patty there in, in, uh, in the VRG. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up because it's ultimately all those things you just mentioned, you know, the, the kind of community and support that I've had in Vegas that, you know, allows me to come here and like not mind being alone or whatever, like I did last winter. Um, And a little bit more willing to kind of like suffer with the VRG's conditions, I guess you could say. But yeah, that's always kind of been the struggle for me, partially because just how I, how I grew up, you know, my family moved a lot and I got really used to kind of changing up shop every two or three years that I've never really felt um, particularly attached to any like one particular place or felt like I have a, a place to call home necessarily. You normally just say that I have seasonal homes, you know, like in the places that I climb, like Yosemite in the spring or Bishop in the winter or whatever. And I've certainly had a few over the years, like San Diego felt like home for a while and, and, uh, Bishop in the East side. And I lived in Reno for a little bit, but, but yeah, um, I've just kind of, seeing it all on a different level, uh, being in Vegas and just having more, more friends here, um, and more people to climb with, but then also just appreciating the climbing here and the variety a lot more. Um, and it's kind of central location in the, the Western States. And then, uh, and then, yeah, being able to have the consistency, like I wouldn't have been able to train the way I did just like in some random city by myself in the van. Like it just, I don't think it would have worked. I would have lost motivation and so being able to live at you know the Honol compound and hang with him and Sonny and have their constant encouragement and support has has been awesome and so yeah I think what you're referencing I said on on Instagram that I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this I don't I think I can but Alex uh you know aside from living in Reno when I 
when I moved back into the van full time, I needed like a I needed to change my address to register my car. And so my my address has been the Honolds address for for years, but I've never actually spent that much time here. And so I've had a Nevada license plate forever and the the slogan has always read home means Nevada, but I never felt that like strongly about Nevada until I've kind of spent the winter here and given it more of a chance and yeah, now it does. Vegas does kind of feel like home and my address, even though it is Alex's address, does kind of feel more like a home address. <laughs> so when I, I lived in Vegas for a few months only in the summer of all things, but that's a whole nother story. But um, uh, do, you, do you, I mean, partake in the fact that like this crazy ass all night city is right there? Because when I lived there and I was young, I mean, that was when I was actually young, um, and, you know, people would come to town and if they were from somewhere else, they were like, okay, we got to go out, you know? So I was actually pretty frequently just like also raging in the city, <laughs> which is kind of the cool thing about any trip, actually, you, when you go to Red Rock, like most people will dip, you know, into the city and, and do the Vegas thing. And it's always been this wild dichotomy of like, cause back then, like you'd camp out, you could still camp out, you know, like at the black Vel velvet wall or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you would like, you know, do as best to yourself to clean up and then go into Vegas. And it was such this like mind blowing trip to go from one place to the other in 20 minutes. Um, so did you, I mean, are you like not into that kind of thing or were you dropping into the city too and, and doing that? I haven't like gone down to the strip or anything like that yet, but I th I'd say that is the really? nice thing about at all. No, not, no, not yet. No, I have, I have in the past, I have in the past on more. <laughs> touristy trips like oh, yeah. with my brother driving cross country and whatnot but now that i've been here no but it is nice to know that you have that as a possibility and there are opportunities to go out and mm -hmm. you know do different mm -hmm. things if you want to be social or entertained or whatever a, a lot of people went out on new year's eve they went to the club all, <laughs> all of them that went out they all got covid so i'm glad i didn't go <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> my point aside from that my point being that all right there you know a lot of my friends around do do that on occasion you know so it right. does come up right. uh what i'm most psyched about being right. in vegas is uh i mean there's really good food to eat all over the place um you know you don't have to go very far to to find good food if you want to eat out there's movie theaters i love going to the movies the only other place I would go to the movies was in Bishop, but they have just that small little two-theater uh, place that is never very current. And then more recently, I've been really psyched on, I've been following hockey again lately. I don't know if you knew I was, I've been big into hockey since I was a kid. And the, the Vegas Knights have been like tearing it up ever since they, they joined the NHL. So they've been fun to watch. And I even got tickets to go see my childhood team the Bruins um they're coming to play next month so Scott Bennett and I got tickets to go see them play so that's kind of what I've been most psyched about in nice. Vegas movies food and hockey and then all the rock climbing yeah nah. and training with Alex Arnold. yeah yep um I I was there long enough too to like figure you know to find out what the other parts of Vegas the the sort of off strip kind of real nightlife sort of scene was and we had our we had our places off of the strip that um you know I, I think were a lot more interesting uh than the glitz and 
and over everything of the strip. So anything, the thing about Vegas is anything's out yeah. there. Like anything. Maybe anything, you got to give me a list of recommendations out tonight, there because I know nothing. <laughs> Dude, that was from the '90s, bro. It's on there. <laughs> no. <nothing left. laughs> Not like the climbing gyms. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine there was this place called the Double Down that was over by UNLV that um, was just a normal bar. By all uh, you know accounts, you'd walk in. It was like a got pool tables and the whole thing, but. Their their shtick was that they would have hardcore porn on all like all the televisions, and I think it had been it had been some some level of a sports bar um, at some point. And when they moved in, they were like, "Well, fuck the sports," but everybody would be acting normal, and it was like a you know it was like college kids, like it wasn't like a weird fetish scene or anything. But you'd just be like playing pool. You know, and you'd like glance up and there'd be like just like full on like deep throating going on on the television. But it was like no one commented on it even. Like it was really weird. It was just, I mean, I, the Vegas people listening will have to, of a certain vintage will have to. That's really you know, hard to imagine. It. But yeah. But they also had this uh, shot called ass juice. And it was in this great big jar on the, like on the shelf. Like if you're, if you're from the Midwest, like if you go to a, like a tavern in Wisconsin, there'll be like a jar of pickled eggs and shit that you can, like that's just standard, like these little sausages or whatever. It was like, God, it was like I don't know, a bunch of different alcohol, but then it had <laughs> this is gonna, it had actually had corn floating in it, um, in the top of it. So you, when you ordered a shot of ass juice, um, you'd you'd be corn or no wow. corn uh, on your uh, on your shot. That's so, unbelievable. Anyway. Wow, that really makes that that joke so. from Tropic Thunder where like the the rapper is advertising booty sweat, you know? It's like drink booty sweat. Yeah, exactly. That that's basically what you just said. Ass juice. Ass juice. Get a shot oh of ass God, juice, I no can't corn. That. <laughs> then you'd lean on the lean on the, the, the bar and shoot your ass juice and, and watch some hardcore porn and it's yeah. it quite a night. Um you could get done anyhow, so um People are going to be, I'm making that up, but some, some listener knows about the double down. Um, anyway. <laughs> and, oh, we're talking about how great the 90s are. Oh, I was just writing yeah. um, ass juice, no corn. Um. <laughs> <laughs> For your next trip to Vegas. Yeah, I'm just taking notes. Um, yeah. Deep throat. No, get the corn. Ass juice. I was a no corn guy, but go ahead and get the corn. Andrew, by the way, I don't really have any partners lined up at the moment. They're all falling through. So if you get psyched, you should come climb out here. Well, we're going to be there I'm next weekend. But I, 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 I had this uh, fantasy of booking a, a flight down to Vegas and um and Oh, dude, out there I would pick you up. You. you should, actually. Or you rent a car. I don't need yeah. to pick you up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe I'll do that because we'll be down there anyway next weekend. But I could get a head start before the uh, the shit show of my family arrives as well. What else you guys got? I got some, I got some random things that I thought would be fun to talk about. Do it. This is all stuff that is fun to talk about with you guys in general. Whether it makes the podcast, that's up to you. Um, this is a this is an interesting thing that I saw witness at or that I witnessed at the crag the other day. Um, it's about warming up in your approach shoes and I guess the nuance in which it's appropriate and when it's douchey. So I just wanted to discuss that kind of, I could illustrate the scenario I'm talking about. I tried to do that once, um, thinking that I would make, uh, I would impress my, my climbing partner, (laughs) 
by warming up on a 510 in rifle in my approach use. And um, I definitely had to take because I couldn't do like one of the moves. <laughs> <laughs> so that was embarrassing. It, it doesn't always go according to plan. Uh, well, Andrew, I always pull that maneuver at our crack yeah. clinics. Um, so where would you put it in that? Um, douchey versus not douchey. Well, there's a there's a reason to. I mean, if it's just a hand crack, it doesn't matter if you're wearing, you know, shoes right. or climbing shoes. Well, at my years ago when I was guiding you, we actually like the Colorado Mountain School at that time had like kind of a policy or like that you shouldn't guide in your approach shoes because it was like sort of like being patronizing to your mm-hmm. clients, um, which we, I mean, I completely and utterly ignored because it's, I was going to not climb five, five in my tight climbing shoes, yeah. like period. So, but yeah, but they kind of looked down on it because they thought it set like, yeah, sort of a patronizing example to your clients who can't climb for shit and, you know, to, to make them wear climbing shoes, kind of like not wearing your helmet and making them wear hel- helmets, you know, that was also against. They the wanted you to wear uh, uh, what, what's your double, sitch? like double walled mountaineering boots yeah <laughs> exactly no just old reikley uh, yeah. like leather ones from 1950 was more appropriate but uh, what what's your sitch jordan you said you had an illustrated yeah, point well i mean i think at the end of the day if you like you can choose whether or not you get annoyed by somebody warming up in their approach shoes and it generally just reflects your own kind of like ego or insecurity right and mm-hmm. so i don't think there's anything wrong with it but there's definitely like ways in which somebody might do it to just kind of like flex or or be a douche but they also just might be doing it because it makes Mm -hmm. sense like you were saying like no i'm not going to climb five five with my client in my tight climbing shoes or whatever and so i I was at the crag the other day it was my my last day at potosi it was on a weekend and you know potosi is like a pretty particular like unique crag and so it attracts a unique crew and so there's there's been like a pretty consistent like Vegas crew climbing up there with a few kind of random people coming in from out of town on on the weekend or whatever. So it was kind of like the usual suspects up there and then um two of which got in like late like kind of in the afternoon. Um and then there was this newer group who had never climbed there before. And it's a hard crag, you know? Like there there's 515 there. Like it's one of the hardest hardest crags in Vegas anyways. And there's just people like climbing gnar all around and then there's really only one warm-up that's 11b it's like kind of hard and short and steep um but that's what one of the guys from this newer crew was climbing on and that was like his project for the day nothing wrong with that right but then this other guy that i said showed up late he came up and just like always like i've seen him do for the past two months he climbs the the 511 warm-up in his approach shoes and a lot of people do that at that at that crag but and I just kind of observed this from afar. He had no idea that this newer climber was there projecting the 511. He wasn't doing it to be like, "Ooh, look at me! I'm going to flex on you," at this crag. You know, he was just like doing his thing. And I I saw the guy watching him. And as he lowered as he lowered down, he was like, he "Cool crying. shoes, bro! Cool shoes, bro!" You know, like <laughs> shouting like. And <laughs> so he met he met yeah, douche with douche. I, I'm trying to I'm trying not to like say any names, but you know the person who had just climbed it in their approach shoes, like like I said, he was totally unaware that there was another guy projecting this route 
that he just did in his approach shoes and he wasn't like flexing at all and so he heard him say like cool shoes bro and was just like what like oh thanks like I, i've had them for a while like <laughs> or something you know <laughs> like he, he, he took he tried to take yeah. it really like th- that's always a good way to diffuse oh, and, yeah, and and the guy i don't want sale exactly the guy said it in like <laughs> in such a way that it was like kind of funny but kind of aggressive like i was a little scared i was like "Ooh, is something about to like i, I just imagine this whole scenario in which in which like words got exchanged and punches got thrown and people got you know into the mix and there was a, a very famous Instagrammer there that I just imagined also like recording Instagram live and exposing all these people in this altercation. I, I just went, I was just like kind of observing at the crag and I was like, next thing you know, like we're all dropped from our sponsors and <laughs> Potosi is shut down and you can never warm up in your approaches ever again. I went deep down that, like that mental storyline. <laughs> it was really entertaining for a second. But it got it got me thinking about that because I've definitely been on the other end where I've been the guy annoyed by somebody doing something in their approach shoes. And like I said, it's generally because I'm like, well, fuck, I can't do that. And that's and obviously this guy can because he's better and it makes me feel bad about myself. But it's not always that it's not always that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You can warm up your approach right. shoes and not right. be a douche. Just don't do it in a way that is douchey to other people. Don't do it to flex. That's my point. I think there's also something to right. be said about just getting used to the fact that you know, at least 20% of your, any climbing day is going to be spent watching other people who make you feel bad about yourself. You know? oh, or, I mean, or like, yeah, just like... the, <laughs> just the likelihood of, of, you know, people being able to warm up on your project. I mean, that is like common nowadays. Well, right? that's, yeah. yeah. I mean that. So I see Alex, yeah. uh, he's been like, Good. he's made that point a few times. He's like, well, at least I'm at the point in my climbing where, very few people can like warm up on my projects, you know, and he's like happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, the interesting, I mean, looking at that situation, um, you know, it's funny because it's sort of ironic because the the douchiness was actually coming from the 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 you know the person that didn't right. climb it in their approach shoes as opposed to the scenario we're talking about. But in my opinion, the lesson taught there is a lesson you know, thinking about rifle, you know, that's in a position like Potosi where there's, you know, so much hard climbing there. Um, I think that it's an important lesson to be taught and you need to, and, and to, to the person on the ground, like you have, if you're going to have fun sport climbing, you, you have to quickly realize and process the fact that there are people around you that are going to crush whatever dream project you have. There's going to be a nine-year-old that's going to crush it. There's, you know, so it's like, I remember my feelings about rifle um, when I wasn't a climber there was that exact thing of like, I'm going to go in there and, and, you know, everybody's mean and they're going to, you know, and it's like, once I got past that and I don't give a shit anymore, if somebody warms up on my project in their approach shoes, like I could care fucking less. It, it made life as a sport climber just yeah, so totally. much more enjoyable. So I, I feel as though there's this service where it has to like the, the, the sort of, egg needs to be cracked like maybe harshly yeah. <laughs> in the case of, of this what happened to this guy and i'm sure it was a guy that yelled nice shoes i mean you might have said that but um i can yeah. easily imagine that um but yeah you need to have your little bubble burst and then you can move on and get over it and like realize that that everyone warms up on let's say 80 feet of yeah. meat and rifle and 
if you're going to project it, you're going to kind of be in the way for a while in the morning and like, that's fine. You'll get, it, the, you'll get you know, there eventually because that's where it happened. You know, that's where I, you know, I've been there. Shit. It's like every other time you're warming up there, there's someone there that's got a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because they're, they're there to right. project it. And everybody's like antsy and, and, you know, throwing their rope down and like, who's next? Who's next? What's up? Is anybody going on this thing? Can I go like, that makes them super yeah. anxious, and uh, I understand, but it's like part of the game. Yeah. Sorry, you know, and it doesn't stop until you're at at Alex Honnold level. So. Yeah, which you might never. <laughs> if you're you climbing thirteen A, if you're yeah, if you're projecting thirteen A or whatever, guess what? There's someone who can warm up on that in their approach shoes, and they might show up yeah. any minute. <laughs> I think so, it's best to yeah, I mean, just to get over yourself in those in those moments and learn how to find you know find that more inspiring rather than demotivating, you know? Well, think about, think about you and, uh, Pumperama, the 13A there. It's like, I mean, that's a lot of people's like 13A project, like their first one. And you were in that boat, not your first one, but, you know, climbing in that cave and, you know, there's plenty of people that like throw Dude, laps yeah, totally. after lap. It's on intimidating. You know, there's the watermelon story, right? Naked with a watermelon attached to their harness. Like that whole lore, that whole part of sport climbing is like, it's important to like get it shoved in your face so you yeah. can get over it um, pretty early or else you're just going to As be long as you're not made to like feel <laughs> shameful for that, you know? I love the people that can, that can, right. you know, do Pumperama five times in a row and that, but then also be supportive of somebody like projecting it for their first time, right. you know? I think I think Alex sets sets a yeah. really good example of that actually. He's he's always very encouraging of other people but not afraid to be like look at me do this without a rope or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the ultimate, right? <laughs> in your approach shoes without a rope. My my um <laughs> with a hamburger in in your hand. In my my hand. takeaway from this um from this story here is that anytime anyone makes me feel insecure in a climbing context I'm, regardless of what it is, I'm just going to say nice shoes. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice shoes, shoes bro. bro. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it made me feel bad. It made me feel bad for the guy. I'm like, dude, you don't need to do that. Like, you can be here and we, you can like climb with this group and at this crag and be cool, and we'll all be supportive of you if just trying your best. But you don't need to like make a whole scene and project your own insecurity mm. on everything. It was just like it was so. Yeah, he's got to work. Dude, through it was those so. It was so extra, out, I but think. I wasn't really climbing much <laughs> that day, and it was like. <laughs> <laughs> it was like yeah, I was just I was just pondering. <laughs> Anyways, all right, moving on. What else we got here? Here, there. Here's one that's perhaps positive and negative. I, I'd like to uh, <laughs> shout out two folks, but then unrelated to them at all, but uh, kind of in the same category. Talk shit on another thing. Can I do that? <laughs> sure. Um, you you guys mentioned them on the uh or indirectly mentioned them in the taps episode but sam stroh and adrian benoni i think is how you say his last name those guys just sent golden gate in the winter yeah, ground the, up just sent golden gate and they were part of the crew that that just pissed all yeah, over yeah. My, learning to fly my proud hardcore old project and 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 an fa of sorts and uh in yeah. Creek. yeah well they're they're two of you know many other people who've been out crushing it lately or over the past year but yeah i thought their their recent send of golden gate in the winter kind of shows like yeah of their motivation and their grit and their willingness or just their psych really to kind of just go for it 
even among bad conditions or or whatever so i just i found that really inspiring and wanted to to give them a, a shout out but then it also made me think back on just big wall climbing and the, a lot of the, the things that people are doing in yosemite right now and dude yeah it's the fix and follow i just wanted to, to talk about the fix and follow method for a little bit you know what i'm talking about what's that um it's i can't remember if it was mikey or josh but they're both pretty big pioneers of the fix and follow method like basically never belang you just fix the rope as the leader and then have your second micro traction you, you look yeah, yeah you don't look like okay. yeah yeah of course yeah i just didn't know what it was that that it had that little yeah yeah it's just it. been called fix and follow now and it's gotten really popular where that's basically all i see people doing i'm really just talking about yosemite but i've you know i've seen it in in vegas um vegas a lot as well and i don't know i i kind of i don't want to see fix and follow become like the way to multi-pitch rock climb with a partner it has its place and i've done it and i've really only ever done it if i'm the leader because i fucking hate micro tractioning but i've just i came into a, a few scenarios this past fall in yosemite where I was kind of on the other end of it where it was really annoying because think about it. If you're, if you're multi, if you're like climbing with a partner and you're belaying as normal, like you're never taking up more than a rope length, right? From one belay to one belay. But if you're fixing and following, you're just leaving your ropes dangling down the route, which gets in the way of other people below you, right? If it's a popular route, that's kind of like the first thing is that if there's people climbing below you, I don't think you should do it because it gets in the way. For example, earlier in the season, I was, um, it was like my first day in the valley. I was climbing the free blast and there were these guys, um, using fix and follow above me. And they had like a tagline and a lead line, just kind of like dangling down on the pitch I was trying to climb. And it's like, ultimately not that big of a deal. You know, I've climbed routes, I've climbed over people through parties over ropes. Like I know how to deal, but it did just kind of annoy me in such a way where I just really didn't think it was necessary. And it just really made me want to like take their rope and just tie a knot in it and like clip it to the anchor <laughs> that I was at and be like, fix and follow that bitch. <laughs> you know, because I was just kind of like, dude, you have to be somewhat considerate of the people around you, you know? And I've even heard of other people being like, like my friends were wanted to go climb this route on Fifi Buttress. And, and then I saw them later that day and I was like, oh, how'd it go? And they're like, oh, like there was these people f using the fix and follow method on the route and basically just like taking up the whole like 10 pitch route. And they're like, yeah, we just didn't really want to go up there and like get in the scene. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my main complaint with it. But also anybody who's micro traction knows how easy it is to like kind of sit on the rope, right? <laughs> I'm just also not very confident of people's integrity and in using this method and like not cheating. You know what I mean? Because it's so e <laughs> it's so easy because I've been there. I was like, I was micro tractioning at the VRG yesterday because I didn't have a partner. And I like tried to climb this sequence and then, I, you know, like going into this crux sequence. And I was like, oh, wait, no, that wasn't right. and Not ready. And I like sat back down and I was like kind of on the rock, kind of resting. But I was also like kind of hanging in my harness. And I was like, ooh, you know, <laughs> I wasn't like trying to send at the moment. But I can just imagine how many people do that. And then and because you're a blayer, can't tell they're fucking not blaying. So they're at the anchor checking yeah. fucking Instagram or whatever while their partner is just like climbing on the pitch below. I don't know. I just think it's lame. What about fixing? <laughs> what about fixing and following in approach shoes? That's the ultimate. <laughs>
fit only if you're jugging. That's when it's appropriate. That's when you fix and follow. You follow on jugs, not on micro traction. Okay, but that's no, not that's, cheating. I mean, that's just the the aid. Can you so still take aid, the sand? That's the aid big wall way. But <laughs> I don't know. I I mean, there's two sides of the coin. I think it does have its place because if both people are trying to free climb hard, you know, it it is more efficient to free up the leader from having to belay it gives them time to like haul a bag and all mm -hmm. that stuff but i don't know i just like i don't think it's is belaying that exhausting that it's going to be the make or break as to whether or not you send this route like if that's the case i think it's kind of light duty so i i, I think you <laughs> we could parse it out to saying like do it but don't do it if it's going to get in other people's way and it's it's sort of like fixed ropes like fixed ropes on a on a popular route because you're working on it is I think come to be completely inappropriate. Yeah. Um, you know, again, El Cap, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the free rider in, in the South, the head wall and stuff like it's, it's no longer okay. I don't think in my opinion, but fixed ropes on, you know, something you're completely sure no one else is trying because you would know them and be talking to them or a, a, a first ascent or something yeah. is totally fine. So I think the fix and follow thing too is, um, you know, I've used it in the Black Canyon, but, you know, on routes certainly that no one else is on, including a first ascent. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's just like it goes back to like you, especially as popular as climbing is, you have to think about how your methods are impacting others. And I think we have this attitude that like, it, you know, for me to get up this route, I've got to do whatever I can. It used to be like when we used to throw our trash right, on right. El Cap, like it. It felt like we had to get rid of that weight or, you know, it was the end of us. And it was like, no, you could have just packed it out. It was just a stupid notion. And I think that's the same way as you have to think about maybe, you know, taking a hit on the method you want to try because you're going to get in everybody right. else's way, you know. And it seems appropriate in this day and age to have that at the, you know, near the top of the list of, of like your concerns when you're climbing. Maybe it'll get so popular to the point that, similar to the need bar debate you know i'll talk shit be like well i freed that route belaying my partner and you guys just micro traction it or something <laughs> so, <laughs> so i get the harder it. grade right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but have you ever tried to micro traction or traverse like that's way harder oh man yeah <laughs> there, you should actually look up uh harrison and uh Brittany, um when they freed the muir last spring i think yeah there's a epic like dino micro traction traversing whipper that uh that britney took following one of those pitches it looked heady yeah i would not oh yeah, i, I did not see that yeah. to do that yeah no that's uh, micro tractioning sideways is absolutely terrifying especially towards the end of the rope if if you've got a lot of weight hanging down off the other end of your the the free end of your rope it's it's totally terrifying so um, I disclaimer i haven't um i haven't done any like team free big walls really i've you know i've done all my stuff like solo i guess or you know leading leading everything right. um, yeah but now so maybe well no I, I i'm planning to climb saying. a no cap route this uh this spring with a partner like kind of you know ground up team style and my plan is to use fix and follow on 511 and below and then belay as normal on 512 and 513 so that's kind of my that's that's my right, well, compromise we'll decide afterwards whether we slander right. slander you for that
I'll we'll just see make how it, it I'll make it very clear. See, we like you, but you know. You and if Jordan's cross rope is in anyone's way, feel free to clip it to your anchor. <laughs> Dude, can you imagine though? Can you imagine if you were doing that and you're you're like, oh fuck, my rope is stuck. And you think it's just like knotted and something, and then somebody just tied it off to an anchor. God, that'd be so classic. <laughs> oh boy. So here it is, 2022. The pandemic is waning, spring is around the corner, the beef basin shitter in Indian Creek just got its much-needed winter break, and yet you, dear listener, are still not supporting the runout. No better time than now. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast today and become a rope gun for access to coruscating bonus material, like our convo with Gunk's Guidebook author and historian Andy Salo, on why guidebooks are still important. Years at the gunks and mm. put your life on the line uh, thousands of times. Yeah, we had that roots. joke. We were like, yeah, like the headline tomorrow is going to be like two guidebook authors like <laughs> eat shit, <laughs> soloing five, five and sneakers like to discover some unheralded chaws from 30 years ago. You right. know? That's patreon.com slash runout podcast to support the runout. For today's final bit, we bring you some baby talk from former guest and climberism's maestro, Dylan Taylor. This is Dylan Taylor from the Instagram account Climberisms, and here's a quick impression of Alex Honnold and Adam Andra having a conversation about how they're going to change their baby's diapers. <clears throat> so, Alex, one, it's really, really good to see you, and I've been wanting to ask you this question now for so long, and that is, have you put any thought into how you're going to change your baby's fucking diaper? Um, yeah, good question, you know. I'm really glad you asked me that because I've been actually, you know, putting a lot of thought into that lately, you know. And I, I figured, you know, no way in hell, you know, am I going to change a baby's diaper. That is just, you know, that's so disgusting, you know what I mean? And I just figured, you know, since I free solo, you know, I'm just going to have the baby, you know, free balling. So your baby's just going to be shitting all over the place? Uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm Alex Honnold, so, you know, I don't think anybody's going to say anything to me or, you know, have a problem. Um, that is, in my opinion, that is fucking disgusting that is so gross i mean have some integrity for yourself what the fuck i mean really i mean iva she's got me in a in a class she's got me in this like master's program on how to change your baby's diaper properly and it's going it's going really really well surprisingly and i'm glad i took it and i'm about to graduate and iva says once i graduate i can finally go bothering again so i think that's something you should really look into i think you'll really benefit from that alex um, no, I'm good. You know, I think I'm good. Yeah, I'm not. No way I'm changing a baby's diaper. That's disgusting. You know, I'm good with the free balling method. You know what I mean? Okay, addicts. But, you know, either way, you know, we're in this together. You know what I mean? That we are, my friend. But I will see you and your baby at the Olympics in 20 years. And no way is your baby going to beat mine because I am fucking out of Mondra. You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. 
We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 it's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.